This is the opportunity to have uh, a little dialogue, and uh, if there's any particular questions or uh, things that came up for you during the um, reflections I was giving, then uh, please uh, don't be shy. And uh, we have a second microphone, I believe. But, uh, yeah. So then uh, I would ask if, if people have a question, if they can use the microphone so then everyone can hear what's being said, and then the question's also recorded. Yes. Thank you. Uh, your story of the difficult, abusive monk, uh, you depicted this as <clears throat> rather in terms of an either-or situation. Either he was allowed to continue abusing and uh, swearing at people, or um, he was taken to task, as he was by Tan Sumedho, in, you know, in front of everybody and sort of had a terrible strip torn off him. Surely there's the third way. I imagine that, that Achen Cha took people aside if they you know, didn't behave in the uh, correct way and had a quiet word with them and tried to put them right. Um, surely he didn't just allow people to continue, you know, in this case, being abusive and difficult and so mm -hmm. on, and just say, oh, well, you, can ju you must just accept this, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, that's, that's the way things are. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's... Uh precisely how he, was, uh, how he would operate. And it was uh, Ajahn Sumedho's presumption that Ajahn Chah wasn't, wasn't doing anything. But uh, it would be exactly that way that, uh, you know, that Lumpur Chah would uh, to wait for a quiet moment and, and then have a uh, uh, more of a one-on-one -on -one, um, exchange with someone or uh, you know, find a situation. He, he never planned things out. He was a very much a situational teacher, so he would use different circumstances to, uh, and different contacts to, to bring things to someone's attention. But uh, it's absolutely as you describe, he, he would have been making a probably considerable input to, to that particular monk, but because it wasn't something that, that, that the young Ajahn Sumedha was seeing, he had the perception of, you know, he's not doing anything. And it could be that Ajahn Chah was feeling like, wow, he's really doing well. You know, you should, you know, if you'd known him five years ago, <laughs> you'd realize he's really bending over backwards, restraining himself. And that's, that's often the case, is that we are um, making judgments or set based on our own presumptions without following up and uh, you know, finding out a bit more about it. So if, if, um, if the young Ajahn Sumedha had found a moment to check with Ajahn Chah saying, Lumpur, are you, are you conscious of, of this monk's speech? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that you haven't said anything. Is there a reason why uh, you haven't? And then if, he was, if he'd asked that in a sincere way, then it would be likely that, that Ajahn Chah would have said, well, actually, <laughs> you know, I gave him a real grilling for you know, three or four hours when he first came and asked if he could stay here. And, uh, and then he would have found out a bit more of the background. But often we, we just shoot ahead based on our own presumptions. And, uh, for myself, when you're in the role of being a, a senior person or a, a, you're in a, a, the seat of authority, oftentimes someone will come up to you and say, Ajahn, Ajahn, I can't believe it. So-and-so, they've, they've changed the flowers on the shrine and they didn't ask anybody, for example. <laughs> or they, they, they've swapped the carpets in the, in the monk's shrine room, you know. And uh, yeah, it's outrageous, you know, that you've got to do something, you've got to do something. And so then you... 
you have to make it a very clear policy that you, you say, well, thank you for letting me know. You don't say, right, I'll, you know, I'll sort that out. <laughs> say, well, thank you for letting me know. And then you, you set a clear intention. Okay, I need to find out a bit more about this story. <laughs> now, what, what else was, the, was in, the, in the mix? Uh, and then you find out, oh, well, yes, I did change the flowers in the shrine, Ajahn, but that's because you know, Ajahn so-and-so told me to, and they said they had permission. And that that's what I, so I was just doing what I was asked to do, uh, as far as I knew. Oh, really? <laughs> and that if you take a bit of trouble, not just to, um, uh, say, act on the, um, the first thing that comes across the table at you and, and take it at face value, but you, you are a little bit more circumspect and you find out a bit more of what the picture is, then again we find ourselves a lot more accommodating. But also the, that, uh, that story does bring to mind, uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal, it's supposed to be true of a, a particular uh, community that was run by Gurdjieff in Paris in the uh, early part of the 20th century. And there was this one character who lived there who similarly was upsetting everybody and uh, was um, yeah, incredibly difficult to get along with and was always causing uh, various kinds of turbulence and, and um, conflict in the group. And uh, apparently, some years later, sort of in the 50s or 60s, one of the original community members ran into him in a, in a cafe and said, oh, I remember you, we used to live together in that uh, Gurdjieff commune in Paris back in the 30s. And he said, yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, I have good memories of that, but wow, if you don't mind me saying so, you were really difficult to live with. We couldn't believe how you could deal with so much conflict and people were always arguing with you. And I mean, it's amazing that you wanted to stay on and uh, because people had you know, such difficulty when they're always finding fault with you, you know, but you, and you just seemed to carry on and, and it all just sort of rolled off you. Uh, and you didn't seem to be bothered by it. He said, oh, I was bothered by it, but uh, Gurdjieff was paying me. <laughs> that was my job. Uh, he was paying me to stay there and, and, and upset everyone. So, uh, yeah, it was difficult, but, you know, it was, uh, I, you know, it was, the boss was, uh, the boss had me on the, uh, <laughs> on the payroll. <laughs> but Ajahn Chai never stooped to that. He didn't have to specially employ people. There was always enough in the random mix of, things that were um, turbulence generators. So, any other questions? Thank you. Yes. Um, Amaro. Um, you mentioned that uh, at the, the summer camp when you were in uh, California that there was this forgiveness procedure where the children ask forgiveness to the parents and vice versa. Yes. And then it reminded me reading in one of Stephen Levine's books, uh, one of these classics, I think, Who Dies, or one of those early ones, where he talks about a tripartite um, intervention when it comes to forgiveness. And he talks about, I will ask for forgiveness for, from you, then I will forgive you, and then the third one that he talks about is forgiving oneself. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could say something more about that and how it might, if, if it at all, ties in with acceptance. Yeah, very good question. Um, yeah. The um, 
It's it's very very close. I mean, in some time, in some respects, it can be easier to forgive others uh, than it is to forgive ourselves for our own our own shortcomings. And uh, it's one of the the themes that comes up in uh, in uh, you know many many dhamma talks. Um, we don't often feel righteous indignation towards ourselves, <laughs> so I didn't really address that today because I was trying to stick to that particular theme. But um, that the, the challenge of, uh, say, uh, accepting our own faults and uh, being ready to not bear a grudge or to, to uh, say, create negative view of ourselves is, is very challenging. But uh, in uh, the development of loving kindness, then uh, the, the, all of the, the, the classic methods of developing loving kindness always start off with ahang sukito homi, you know, may I, may I be well, may I be at ease, may I be happy. So that, uh, that the, uh, there's a, an exercise that I like to encourage when people do suffer from a lot of self-criticism and that their mind moves towards uh, that unforgiving quality and it's it's quite a simple exercise whereby, if you uh, like, if I can ask you what your name is, Jamie. Jamie. So if Jamie was your best friend, so for a moment you haven't got a name, but Jamie is your best friend, and Jamie comes to you and says, "I feel so awful. I'm such a wretched person. I've been so selfish and lazy and and hard-hearted, and you know, I just I just really don't care about uh, you know things in the way that I, I feel I should. I feel I'm a really a really rotten person. Now, if your friend Jamie came and said that to you, what would what immediately rises up within the heart? To me, whenever I do this, it, what immediately arises is uh, is compassion, forgiveness. Uh, you're not that bad. You're a nice bloke. You know, don't be so hard on yourself. So, if you were your friend and you came to uh, and you came to you, <laughs> and uh, and listed all the things that were wrong, what immediately arises is, it's not that bad, or don't be so hard on yourself. You're, you're not, <laughs> you're not a, a, an evil, rotten, selfish person at all. You know, you're, you're very uh, good-hearted and, and noble. You're a good friend. And if you carry out this exercise, if you can follow the thread of what I'm saying, it's, it's astonishing how it's absolutely immediate. The mind moves directly towards Oh, don't don't worry about it. You're you're fine. Or, or don't make a big thing out of it. it immediately, there's there's a, a lack of vindictiveness. You know, I've never heard. I've, I've been say uh, teaching this and encouraging this exercise for I don't know twenty twenty five years, and I've never had an experience of anyone saying that their mind immediately went to yeah right. And let me tell you another thing. <laughs> you should be punished. You know? uh, don't think you're going to get away with that. Uh, it never happens that when we we don't take it personally, when we in a way step outside of our own life and we look at our life as if it was somebody else's life, when we don't take our own life personally, then it, the the sense of of compassion and forgiveness, uh, accommodation is is immediate. So that, but again, acceptance isn't the same as approval. Just like you know having. Love uh, for Mao Zedong or, or Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler is not saying that you approve of their actions and the incredible destructive results of their, their lives. You know, tens of millions of people dying at their instigation and, and through their 
their actions and their, their will. Um, but what, uh, what you can say is that you, you can divide the, the, uh, the action from the, the, the being, if you like. So that when we are forgiving of ourselves, it's not saying that, oh, everything I've done is good. And uh, you know, I've never done anything blameworthy. Uh, it's not that. You're not trying to sugar things over. Or like there's a, one of the Calvin and Hobbes cartoons that I kept for a long time where it starts off with Calvin saying, nothing I do is my fault. <laughs> yeah. And that uh, you know, we're not abdicating from responsibility because sometimes we have done things that, that were hurtful. You know, we have perhaps acted in ways that were, were selfish or harmful, um, destructive. So you're not pretending that it didn't happen. But you're recognizing, well, that's happened. Um, now, what can I learn from that? I'm not pretending it, that it was okay or that it was good. Or that, but no, that was, that was poorly done. That was harmful. Now, uh, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not going to create more negativity about it. Now, what can, what can I learn from it? So that's important. And there's a phrase that again comes up in the, the Buddha's teaching over and over, particularly in the, the Vinaya rules where he says to, to recognize our transgression as such and then to endeavor to do better in the future. This is called development in the Buddha Sasana. That's how we train ourselves. You don't pretend that you never made any mistakes. You don't pretend that your mistakes are unforgivable. But you recognize, well, that was a missed shot. You know, I didn't hit the bullseye. <laughs> I said something that was callous or that was, uh, it was supposed to be a joke, but it was really nasty. Uh, that really hurt that person. Uh, or that was really selfish. You know, that was uh, misguided. And to recognize, yeah, I missed my shot there. That was a, that was a badly chosen uh, uh, word. So you're not pretending that that wasn't the case. Okay, now what can that teach me? And then the, uh, the thing that is then the, uh, the driving force for how that can be helpful is what's called hiri otapa. Hiri otapa, which is moral sensitivity. Uh, it, the, 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 gate, the, the doorway to the temple, Amravati temple, you have these two deva-like beings, one with a blue aura and one with a red aura. So they represent Hiri and Otapa. And so those are, Hiri is your own conscience, and Otapa is your own sense of, of right and wrong as, uh, as you, you see in the world around you. Uh, so Hiri and, and Otapa, so when we, we have made a mistake, we've said something that is hurtful or that we've told lies or we've, acted in a selfish or greedy, indulgent way or destructive way, then hiri is that pain in the heart that says, ow, that, was, that wasn't true or that was poorly done. So that in, in Buddhism, the stronger the, the feeling of hiriyotapa is, the more that represents a, a mature spirituality. Someone with no hiriyotapa is someone who has, uh, is very deluded or is very lost. Uh, uh, so that to feel a lot of pain at even bending the truth slightly, that's good. <laughs> it's a good pain. <laughs> because it, it helps us to, to then not make mis the same mistake in the future. So that when that, when that painfulness is grasped uh, by self-view and, and identified with, then it becomes a guilt trip. I, I'm a terrible person, I'm so awful, I should never be forgiven. 
you know, my, my life is ruined. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a bad and rotten character. That's self-view grasping hold of hiri otapa. So that, that's a destructive habit. But if there's no self-view, then that hiriyotapa is a, is a tremendously helpful blessing. So that those, those two, they're called the lokapala, or the guardians of the world. They're what, in a way, helps humanity to hold together as a, as a group, is that um, the, the love of what is wholesome, the love of harmony, the love of honesty, and, um, the, that, uh, and the, the, the repellent quality of violence and selfishness. That's what helps us to, to bond as a, a human community. So when we, we look back at our actions, then um, we are, are able to acknowledge, okay, well that was, a, that was a big mistake, that was poorly done. Okay, now, I'm not pretending that it didn't happen, I'm not sugaring it over, it happened. Now, what can I learn from that? What can that teach me? I mean, what, how can I turn that to something useful? And uh, I was telling the story, uh, I think uh, last week about uh, Air Chief Marshal Constantine, um, and uh, who was in bomber command in the Second World War. Is I met him at the hospital near here many years ago, and how he had uh, been responsible for a huge amount of destruction during the the Second World War, but how the the recognition of that and how you know, he visited every city that he bombed in Germany. Uh, after the war, he went and looked to visit all the places that he'd been responsible for for the destruction of, and then that that fueled this resolve in him to dedicate the rest of his life to trying to prevent war from ever happening again. So we take we can take the the painful result of our actions and turn it into, into something that's a source of blessings for others. Uh, I just saw this um, uh, and the most kind of. <laughs> extraordinarily negative obituary for um, somebody who who died recently in Nevada in in the USA, and it was it was a, the obituary was co-written by this woman's children, and it was the most uh, extraordinarily negative diatribe about how horrible this person was, and uh, that I, uh, I don't know the all the background story to it, but just as, as an example of this, so. The children got together and they published in the paper this this extraordinary negative obituary about their mother, who was a very you know, hateful, selfish person, who was was seemingly very vindictive and made their lives uh, of her children miserable and and all of their spouses. <laughs> and uh, it was the most uh, painful, horrible thing to read. But they but what was significant was that because uh, the, us six of the eight. Uh, our six surviving children of this uh, of this woman, because our own childhood and our lives since then have been made so miserable that we have uh, made the com com the communal commitment to uh, the prevention of child abuse to the to what extent we can you know, throughout the the USA, and they'd started a charity to help um, uh, say be like a. a, a um, child support and, and uh, abuse prevention group, and that they'd taken their own miserable uh, life experience, and rather than just dwelling in in uh, resentment and hatred for their their mother, um, had taken that pain and and was were trying to use it to to help this never to happen to any, anybody else or to to um, say. Um, 
to use the, the energy of that negativity and, and turn it around to, to fuel something beneficial. So when we are forgiving ourselves, uh, for usually it's, it's much more small-scale things. <laughs> but uh, it, I think I feel it's, it, within that it's important to not be afraid of the painfulness that arises when we remember things. We're not trying to pretend you know, everything I do is I'm not <laughs> nothing I do is my fault, like Calvin. <laughs> I'm not responsible. It's it's all the uh, the 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 uh, fault of society. Um, but we are ready to, to not take it personally, to recognize where we have made mistakes and to learn from that. Similarly, um, it takes even more effort to recognize our own goodness, what's called chaganusati, the recollection of, of goodness. That's even harder to accept, is that we, we're actually a kind and good person. <laughs> because that seems to be very inflated and egotistical. But one of the, the uh, anusati, the, the, the contemplations that the Buddha encouraged, like Maranusati, the contemplation of death, or Buddhanusati, uh, the contemplation of Buddha, and uh, Dhamma and Sangha, and so on. Chaganusati is the contemplation of our own goodness, our own generosity, our own virtue. So, and again, this is one of the things that um, in these. Lumpur Sumedho's early years is it's an exchange that he talks about very often he had with, with Ajahn Chah where he went to Lumpur and, and said, oh, you know, I, I, I'm such a bad person, you know, my mind is just filled with these poisonous thoughts and I just, uh, I'm just so riddled with aversion and lust and anger and restlessness, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's really good for me to carry on as a monk, my, my mind is such a, you know, a kind of horrible poisonous mess. And uh, Ajahn Chah listened to him and said, Sumedho, if you were really as bad as you think you are, you wouldn't be interested in coming anywhere near a Buddhist monastery. You wouldn't want to be around anyone who was dedicated to non-violence and, and, and generosity. Those kind of people would repel you. <laughs> and uh, he said, Sumedho, you should, you should uh, contemplate your own goodness. And he said, when Ajahn Chah suggested this to him, he thought, what? It was like this kind of, an inconceivable thought, like, like sort of a, uh, <coughs> imagining a ten-dimensional cube. It's like, my own goodness? What? Like a, a, it never crossed his mind. And also, having a, a Christian upbringing, that's the sort of thing you're not supposed to do, is think, oh, what a good person I am, because that's taken to be pride. He said, no, no, Sumedha, you're a good person. You're, you know, you're, you have a lot of very noble and, and, and wonderful qualities. That's why you've, you've chosen to shave your head and come and live here in this remote forest in the northeast of Thailand and eat this horrible food that we have here at Wat Bapong. <laughs> yeah. Most monks can't even live here, but you, you like it. You, know. you wouldn't like it if you weren't a good person. Right? And he said it was just like this, oh... Wow, gosh. Well, think of that. <laughs> it had never occurred to him. And, and that, that, so in a way, it's, it's, uh, it's a counterpart to forgiveness, but actually recollecting, yeah, I am. I'm not a bad person, really. <laughs> I do like to help others. Uh, yeah, and I don't mind if I'm not praised. Yeah, and I, I always like to think of other people first. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> And to not create egotism out of that or in being inflated, but just to recognize, 
yeah, if somebody else had those qualities, I'd be full of praise for them. But, uh, oh, that, that's not a bad thing. And so uh, the Buddha didn't encourage Chaganusati to make us inflated, but just to, to in a way, recognize the punya, the blessings that you've, you've created, let that brightness that you've generated actually be uh, experienced and fully known. So, any other comments, questions? So please don't be shy. I can talk people into the ground very easily. Speaking about <laughs> speaking about speech habits, so forgive me for the blizzard of verbiage. But, uh, please, uh, if you have any other things, if you could s speak up, so I can. Um, as a Buddhist, we we all believe in negative karma, positive karma, um, it's really like it's far too deep a, a subject for me to understand. But sometimes I, I think, sometimes I'm quite new to uh, Buddhism. If you start using like people say that it's karma, then karma sometimes stops people helping to mm -hmm. actually actively do anything, which I found myself, I felt like I found myself, I'm not so long ago. It's a good question. I think one of the, if I'm remembering correctly, one of the talks earlier this summer was um, on exactly that theme. I think it was the, uh, a to be or not to be, is that the right question? So it was recorded, so <laughs> it should all be there. But it, it's, it's a, a thoroughly misunderstood um, subject, karma, because uh, as I was trying to point out in that talk, what we you know, what we have in the Buddha's teaching is is not a fatalistic teaching, and that he he spent a lot of effort trying to counteract that kind of belief. So just what you're describing, when someone says, "Oh, well, I don't want to interfere; it's their karma," like, that's you creating karma right there. <laughs> Choosing not to act is is a choice that's being made. So um, that uh, the word karma actually just means action. People, uh, and even the Oxford English Dictionary tends to define it as fate, uh, which it, in, in, in Buddhist terms, it doesn't mean that. It, it's, it's much more the action that you take and then the other part of it is vipaka, which is the result. So in a way, when we use the word karma, it's, a, it's shorthand for kama vipaka, action and its result. And uh, one of the things I, I always like to point out is that your, your knowledge of a situation is that it means that you are involved. That's the substance of your involvement. You are involved. <laughs> if you if you know about a situation, uh, so that very cogn cognizance of it equals your involvement. So you can't. Uh, uh, re uh, to me, you can't realistically and genuinely 
stand back and not be involved because your standing back is how you are engaging with it. So um, I, I feel, and it does actually happen a lot in Asia where there is much more of the sort of folk belief about determinism that where uh, I don't want to interrupt, uh, he's working out his karma, I don't want to, in, I don't want to interrupt. Or how it's, it's taken as a kind of um, justification of the caste system. And so that, no, it's a bad thing to let, to let um, say, um, people in the lower castes have jobs or livelihood that would be only available to higher caste people because they're working out their karma. You'll interrupt their karma if you give them a pay rise. I think the Buddha would give that very short shrift, <laughs> indeed. But that's just, to me, that's complete nonsense. It's just a, a, a confused justification of the status quo. And that um, uh, that's, if you, if you look at the Buddha's teaching, he worked long and hard to counteract that kind of fatalistic, deterministic thinking. And, um, and I feel it's one of the great strengths of, of, of Buddha Dhamma that uh, we are the, um, the, the agents of our own karma. We're not victims of fate, but we have the capacity to make choices and our choices make a difference. And so that uh, when we, we look at it like that, then uh, also just on a day-by-day, moment-to-moment basis, and rather than coming from a place of, a theoretical place of, oh, I don't want to interrupt with this person's karma, or, or, um, uh, <clears throat> or just, or we say, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, it's not my business, you know, I'll, I'm, that, you are, that the, those can be just simple ways that we're justifying our own emotional reactions with a bit of philosophy. <laughs> But if we step down from that and then we actually open ourselves to the situation, what we can recognize is, well, well, I can help here. And so um, I, can, I, can, I can contribute something, I can join in and, and help out here. Um, and that not from a philosophical or theoretical place, but just from your common sense and your attunement to someone who's having a difficult time or someone who um, you know, could do with a pay rise. And that uh, when you come much more from a, a natural attunement uh, to a situation, then you, uh, um, in a way, you're, I'd say you're, you're much closer to the reality of it. And then also you can see the good results of your actions. Um, th there's a famous uh, story, again, it's one of those apocryphal stories, whether it actually happened or not, I don't know, but they talk about it. Where I was living in California, there's a, a, um, a long beach um, uh, near the town of Fort Bragg, it's called Ten Mile Beach. There's two people walking along the beach together, and there were a lot of these. Um, it's a, a kind of it's a, called a sand dollar. It's a, a, like a little kind of um, sea creature, that, uh, and there was thousands, tens of thousands of them, millions, millions of them washed up on the beach after a storm. Usually, you only see them, and they're like a kind of sea urchin. They've got a, like a flat sea urchin shell, but these were live ones that have been washed up. There've been big storm, and so there's millions and millions of them all along the beach. And these two friends were walking on the beach together, and um, one of them kept bending down and picking up one of the, the, the sand dollar, these sort of sea urchins, and tossing it back in the sea. And as they're walking along, her friend says, look, <coughs> there's millions of these things. I'm getting really fed up with you stopping and, and sort of throwing them back in the sea. It's, look, look, the whole, the whole beach is covered with these things. It doesn't make any difference. And she said, does to this one. <laughs> so, and so, <laughs> so I felt that was a very good instance where you know one person's coming from a place of theory, and the other one's saying, "Well, look, here is a living being in my hand. It likes to be in the sea. It's stuck on the beach. So, 
at least this one can get back in the water again. So, um, also, in terms of understanding karma, maybe the last thing to add into the mix is that the, uh, this is one of the what's called the four achinteyas or imponderables. So the Buddha, the Buddha said these are there are four aspects of uh, of uh, reality that if you try and figure it out, you'll either go crazy or your head will explode. And these are the the ultimate beginning of things, the like the origin of life, the universe, and everything, the um, the all the workings of karma, the range of the mind of a Buddha. And uh, all of the uh, levels of meditative absorption. So th this, these are realms where thought uh, uh, kind of collapses at the border. <laughs> Our thinking mind can't encompass the reality that is there. So don't feel that you're you're just not being clever enough if you can't figure out all the workings of karma. <laughs> but uh, it's much more helpful rather than trying to figure it all out to be to witnessing the cause and effect in our daily life, moment to moment. How when you, you act on a friendly and helpful impulse and you say and you, you, you look at a situation and say, okay, well I can help here, I'll do something. Or you look at a situation and you go, well, I'd love to be able to help but actually oh, there's nothing I can do here. I would do something if I could but this is out of my hands. Okay. And uh, so that you're you're looking at the the results of that. Okay, when you when you help or when you you uh, you're, you you are not able to help, then you recognise. Oh, when you when you relate to a, situations like that, there's a, a spaciousness, a peacefulness, a contentment, a clarity within. If you instead uh, come uh, come from a much more selfish or, or reactive place that you sort of chase after something that you like or you find yourself ranting against something that you dislike um, and then you, you look at the result of that. This is tight, stressful, heavy, <laughs> agitated. Oh, that's, that's the result of that action. And so in that respect, karma and vipaka, it's not mysterious. You say, okay, you act, you act in this way, there's this result. You act in that way, there's that result. And so then the, the felt experience of the effects of our own actions, it, that's, what in, that's what guides us. And then the rest of the whole picture, the life, the universe and everything, don't worry about it. <laughs> hmm? Right. Well, it's, it's also significant that the Buddha said, he compared his teaching to the handful of leaves. You're probably familiar with that. He said, he yeah, picked up a handful of dead leaves from the forest and he said, uh, can you see the, the, the amount of leaves I have in my hand? And they said, yes. Can you see the number of leaves on the trees in the forest? Said, yes. So what, which, which is greater, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? Uh, well, venerable sir, the leaves in your hand are very few and the leaves in the forest are, are very, very many. They're uncountable. He said, similarly, what I know, what I understand is comparable to the leaves in the forest. What I teach you is comparable to the leaves in my hand. Why do I only teach you that? Because what I teach you is what's conducive to clarity of mind, to liberation, to freedom, to peace. That's why I teach it. All the other stuff is, you know, is not conducive to that. It's not helpful. It's not, not useful. Therefore, I don't talk about it. So he was unique in as, a, as a sort of world religion teacher in that he very specifically limited the range of what he talked about. He didn't try to 
explain you know, life, the universe, and everything. Um, he's, he realized if people just get this much, <laughs> just this much, and when uh, when you see the the Buddha image with the mudra like that, that's what that when he has the the thumb at the first finger joint, like in the temple, that's what I was told was what it's representing. He says this is all you need to know. The rest, this is what is you know, can be known, but that's all you need. It's just one one finger joint worth. <laughs> so if we if we understand that and the laws of cause and effect uh, is very much a part of that, we are able to just see how how cause and effect works. See, this is and this is how it operates. These are the laws that our life runs according to. Then. Uh, we are, are well on our way to learning everything that we need <laughs> to really bring our life to a, a fulfillment. Okay, one last one. Yeah. I'm more for the comments, really. First of all, the way you were saying that, that you know, with a drug addict, it's not loving kindness to give a drug, drug addict drugs. As, as with a needy person, if someone is very needy for being a victim, it's not loving kindness to give them what they need. And having said that, you can still be loving kind. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really about that. But my question really was, can you have emotional intelligence or skillfulness without a very high level of uh, Delft's willpower? Uh, it's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that... Uh, it's, yeah, effort... And uh, the maintaining of uh, intention is is a, a big part of the of spiritual development, and that to um, uh, to be able to sustain that um, the uh, the effort to be mindful, to be not following emotional reactions, to of, of like and dislike. Um, that takes a lot of alertness and a, and a lot of um, uh, energy. There, there has to be a, um, uh, a, a quality of, of resolution. And so there's various different ways uh, to, to support that. But without that, it's like having a poster on your wall or a, a, a kind of slogan on your fridge. This is, you know, may all beings be happy. You know, it's on the fridge, but as soon as you get out onto the road, like, oh, that bloody idiot, he's parked in my drive. And then, you know, you lost it. But it's on the fridge, it's there with the rainbow, you know. May all beings be happy. So it just, it just remains like that. It's a sort of a nice idea, but it's no follow-through. So um, that, in order for that, those kind of principles to be followed through, then the more that we can sustain mindfulness and the more that we can really uh, say, take to heart the priority of that. Okay, this is, the, this is what I'm really interested in with today. This is the main thing I'm doing today. I might be talking to people, I might be going places, I might be doing my job, but the main thing I'm doing is trying to be awake to my emotional reactions. So that kind of prioritizing, like, okay, this is what I'm really interested in, I'm putting my attention on this, I want to give this uh, effort and, and put energy into this. That kind of application is really essential. 
Otherwise, it's just a sort of a, it's a, like a nice thought off in the background, and you're hoping for the best. You know, you put it, and put a, a sign on your fridge or a bumper sticker on the back of your car, and then it's yeah, you respect the principle, but there's no follow through. You're not you're not um, enlivening it. So that uh, I, I would say that um, that element of, of effort and resolution uh, are essential for really bringing about that you know, sp spiritual maturity. So I think we've uh, covered a lot of useful things today. It's uh, reached the round on the clock to four, so uh, call it to a close there. Uh, so uh, I uh, will be leading a two-week retreat from this coming Friday, and so I won't be, one of the other Ajans will be giving the next uh, Sunday talk, and uh, so I'm sure there'll be uh, equally delightful, interesting opportunities, so please do uh, come along, and um, whatever's been said today that's, that's helpful and useful, then please take it with you, and whatever is wrong, harmful, <laughs> offensive, or not helpful, then please uh, leave it behind. <laughs>